From the gleaming, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio, nestled in the peaceful hills of Encino, California, the following program is produced by Magic Man Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man over there, Howard Lapidus, manager to the star, and this character is Mark C.G. Boyer. And now, True Crime Uncensored. Yeah, with all the corrupt cops we could have had on the show, you were our first choice. You know, it, you know, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you very much. Thank you, know, you so much. On the, before we really get going here, Michael, uh, on the corrupt cop thing, 25% of all the rookies uh, have the intent on being corrupt? Did I read that about you? You said Yes. That? Yes, I would I would say that's an accurate number, yes. Not now now that's still only a quarter of the department coming in and things may have changed because now they're hiring older cops. They set a, a minimum age at 22. You have to have 60 college credits or military background. Oh, that's new. That's new. Yeah, that's all new. And even though some might be leaning toward it, you have people with a higher caliber of morality coming on now, I could say. When I came on, I had friends that got their GED days before we were sworn in. And all we could talk about was getting rich. You know, and a lot of these guys are fourth generation. I, I, I worked with cops who had relatives going back to the days of the dead rabbits, you know, when there were two metropolitan police departments, you know, gangs of New York era. And at that time, corruption was not seen as bad. And in their lineage, it still isn't. It's so, seen as bad. I'm listening. No, uh, just, just a question. So when you walked in the door, you and your, you, know, you made friends going in or you went in with people, you know, it's just, I don't know what the circumstance was. It doesn't really matter. But you guys started by thinking about how rich you're going to get. Absolutely. At Jimmy Walker, back in the 1930s, a New York City mayor, said he refused to give cops a raise during the Great Depression. He said, shame on the cop who can't make a living on his beat. Cops were <laughs> underpaid for generations because corruption, a certain degree of corruption, is expected. So, so uh, if I'm going to put two and two together here, at least the mob tells you that they're <laughs> the cops. The cops are taking their taking your money, and you think that you're protected. The mob at least tells you, "Look, uh, you know, uh, give us your money, or we'll hurt you." <laughs> yeah. So you're caught like in a, you're caught in a situation where it behooves you to go with it, but you have to move as gingerly as possible because either way, you're caught between a cock and a hard place. You know, you have to. It's really a de if you're going to go that route and you find yourself as a street cop, you know, there's a lot of different avenues to go in the police department. But if you find yourself as a beat patrolman, you know, or in patrol, walking the beat, it's a, it's a good place to be for the cop who doesn't know anyone. But if you find yourself stationed in the ghetto, in a precinct where there's a high crime, where there's a lot of vice going on, that's really what you want. That's what we were looking for. You, you just have to be careful. And I kind of, I kind of caught myself in a Simon Templar situation where my <laughs> own code of morals caught up with me, and I'm going to pay for it for the rest of my life. So going in, well, I'm like a three-year-old because I think all cops are there to protect me, and, I, and when I see a cop, I feel good. Um, you go in as a rookie. What and you th and, and you, are you full out on your way to think about getting rich? 
Which way? How did how did you, I mean, how didn't did you plan you? on gee your your golden uh, fleece would be if you could just be a drug cop in Harlem? That would be the holy grail. I'm finishing the question though. What? How would it? You know, what did you plan on doing? What? What I planned on doing was making as many connections as possible. If I if I found connections that would lead me into a career path like narcotics where in 18 months I can get a detective shield and take either detective path or take tests and get promoted, I was going to try to make as many connections as I could, especially with people of Irish descent. We call those the shamrocks. They run, they've been, they ran the police department for over 150 years. Even there, I was going to try to find corruption. But anywhere I could, you try to rub elbows and you hobnob with the people. It's like if you go to Vegas, you know if you go to the high-stakes poker room, you're going to find the best poker players. You're going to be with the big leagues. You're going to find yourself in a World Series of poker. I wanted to get with the most dirty, most ruthless people possible to, you know, fight my way, kill my way to the top or whatever I had to do to make a sufficient living to sustain the type of life I wanted. That makes perfect sense. But we're talking about people with badges and uniforms. Yeah. Well, people with badges and uniforms are just people. They, you know, they're people, too. You know, uh, Bill Gates went to jail. Bill Gates has paid millions of dollars in fines, clawing his way to the top of the Internet world. Uh, I'm sure uh, Sean Puffy Combs did the same in the hip-hop world. I'm sure, uh, uh, what's that guy's name who sang Layla? Eric uh, Knights of White Satin and Walk on the Wild Side, those guys who, uh, who, uh, <laughs> what, uh don't, don't, <laughs> he's doing inside jokes here. <laughs> <laughs> those, those guys did whatever they had to do. You know, cops, now don't get me wrong. All, uh, most cops, including myself, have a Simon Templar type, a, a scale of morality where things, there are things we all basically agree on. Some are way worse than others. Some are absolutely soulless, like Michael Dowd, especially when they get their minds corrupted with narcotics, when they become junkies themselves. They could, you know, be, uh, um, they could, they, they could be involved in the most heinous crimes. But most are just looking for money. And like, if, if you're getting pulled over, nothing necessarily bad is going to happen to you. I worked with a guy named Louis Apolito, who was known as a mafia cop, where he actually did contract killings he blew people away on the side of the highway. He's now serving a life sentence. Him and his partner, uh, Tara, Tara Tappa was his mm, name. Right. They, um, right. Those guys did heinous stuff, but not just to random people. They're still a cold. They didn't go around molesting children or, you know, I, I did know cops that there was a time where um, I was working and I had to go to the morgue. And we walked in on an assistant medical examiner uh, who was a necrophiliac. Oh, and there were cops who would now, instead of telling on him, have them call him when people had gold teeth, and the cops would remove the gold teeth with pliers. You know, real bottom feeder type of stuff. It's, it's on all types of scales. And you try to, just like everyone else, you follow the path of least resistance. And um, I found myself in a very, very sticky situation, which led me to really a bad spot and sometimes it's like when you're a privateer how great britain had the privateers when they were at war with spain it gets to the point where great britain didn't need the privateers anymore and then labeled them outlaws and then put people like uh henry teach to death you know that's how i found myself i found myself an outlaw amongst outlaws 
Yeah, that's you know, why it's very dangerous to be one of America's close allies. You know? What was uh, <laughs> like, what uh, was the the most uh, surprising and heinous thing that you saw a cop do when you first got in and shocked you? When I was what, something I saw that shocked me when you first and, got there, you go, "Oh my God, what is the deal here?" Oh, when I first when I first got there, it was a, a demonstration on the front steps. Uh, I also helped plant a gun on a guy who had been shot twenty four times, but that didn't shock me. What shocked me was, do you think that someone who will when you, when you surround yourself with dirty people, you think that someone in the group or someone in your unit or in, on your squad has some kind of morality? And a guy was beaten to death in our in our care. He had his, they put his mouth on the front steps of the precinct and like kicked in his head, you know, like killing him. So we drug his body inside as people were screaming and yelling. And a medical examiner came, and he told us to heat up cocaine, put it in the needle, and shoot him up with it. And this guy was beaten to a pulp, and his death was ruled death by cocaine psychosis. It was called expired in police custody was put in the paper and at that point i said to myself you know you might as well just spiral downward to you know to beyond the abyss of morality because this is it you're really dealing with some bad boys here and even though we laughed and joked and we drank and we enjoyed each other's company and we played cards and we gambled and had football pools i knew i was surrounded by hardened killers not criminals but killers that uh, I want to let our audience know that you have two excellent books that they should buy immediately. Uh, one is called uh, uh, Chili Pippin' Atlantic City. And the brand new one, which I've been reading, is fabulous. It's called Black Church, Sex, Drugs, and the Holy Ghost. Now, you're pretty ghosty yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, as an author myself, i got to give you a compliment. I know what you do. You listen because there is dialogue in this book that is so real, you know it's real. And that's a, a, a great thing. You might want to say that again. There's dialogue in, in the book. book that's so real. You know it's real. You know it's real. And uh, there's one thing that... Uh, real to real. Real to real. Oh, and days. cassette and 8-track. Uh, and, uh, you know, as someone in, in, the, in the biz, someone who, who writes novels as well, I know that that's... You can, you can be there and people think you're just like a fly on the wall. You're not paying attention. You're just there, but you're soaking it all up. Yeah. That's the trick. You so somewhere in there, Michael, somewhere in there, there was a compliment, but he, he promoted himself first. <laughs> I always do. But he said, you, you want to take notes. He's a master. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. This is, this is Mark. Um, two questions. One, it's been a while since you escaped the NYPD. Yes. And so your contemporaries at that time were at a particular level within the <laughs> within the police organizations. One would suspect that those individuals have continued to move up. What's the last part of what you said? That they would move up. The people you were with since you left have moved up the food chain in the NYPD. Absolutely. A very a very good friend of mine is now a one star chief. He's a deputy chief. Several have become captains. Several have become union reps, and one who I actually witnessed commit a murder is now uh, a vice president of the PBA, the union. And what it does is I've agreed, I've been brought in several times by the FBI and the NYPD and asked to give these people up. The reason I don't give them up is because it gives me freedom to write my books, 
to talk openly about murders and robberies I've committed on radio and on the Internet and not have to fear for my life. They know I won't give up their names. So it gives me a type of insulation. So, and, when I'm, and when I'm pulled over in New York and I have a trunk full of guns or I have a kilo of cocaine, I don't have to worry about anything. So you've been pulled over in New York with a trunk full of guns and a kilo of cocaine? No, but you did get body in the, in the trunk. <laughs> no, body, dis, body dismemberment and disposal only carries a seven-year statute of limitation, so I could talk about that all I want. I talk about that in the book. Yeah, yep. you certainly do. So you're still doing bad things. Well, well since, <laughs> since, I, since I, can, I can't confirm or deny any involvement in current crime or criminal enterprises, control, continued criminal enterprises, CCE, but since I was fired, one thing I can't do is I can't get a job doing anything anywhere. You know, it's one goal at a time. Right now, my goal, you know, even Simon Templer is on <laughs> Wikipedia. Bill Barrera is on Wikipedia. And... um Marshall Burrier is also the author of Mighty Mouse is on Wikipedia, and that's my goal. You're not, you're no one until you have a page on Wikipedia. Oh, uh, we, we, we'll make sure you get one. <laughs> it, takes about, it takes about a half an hour. You're good to go. Okay, so the so. second question is, um, you you're living in a cesspool of dishonesty, corruption, and violence. Um, what the hell did you have to do to get kicked out of this fraternity? Well, what I had to do was, when you're in that world, sometimes people can confuse you for being worse than you actually are. And if something happens where you show any sign of not being completely committed to their cause, or they feel like they can't trust you, you show any reservation, at that point you become a threat. Uh, I was... I was uh, his name is Lieutenant Ernest Pappas. He's now a captain in Bronx Narcotics. We were all, we, I was working in Manhattan off narcotics at the time, and we had to justify our budget, our fiscal budget. If we didn't justify our fiscal budget by making arrests, by having a certain number of arrests, an mm -hmm. arrest quota, we wouldn't get funded. If we didn't get funded, we would have to go back to patrol, back to our precincts. I would be sent back to Brooklyn. I would be taken out of the sugar pot of Sugar Hill, Harlem, where I was making 50000 a day robbing drug dealers, you know, beating people up for drug dealers, protecting drug dealers. So we were desperate. But what I didn't want to do was at that point, we would get some drugs together. We would frame drug dealers. We would plant drugs on them. We would arrest 30 people at a time for the same marijuana joint. You know, <laughs> and, and Lieutenant Ernest Pappas said to me, one day we were, we were locking up working people on the way to the bus stop. And he pulled me to the side. He saw me. He saw my face was changing because all we were arresting were African-Americans. You know, and I happened to be an African-American. And he said to me, Mike, what's your problem? We're only arresting niggas. He said, we're not, when you, whenever you're with us, we're not bothering Spanish people. You know, he said, fuck these niggas. He said, at the very least, even if, even if they beat their charges, they won't be able to get a civil service job because we give them records. So it gives good people like Spanish people and Italians and, you know, and, and people like me jobs. And I, and I looked at him and he saw my face. I, I ashened over. I went back to the precinct and I had a hard time looking in the mirror. Because I, and at the end of the day, even though I'm wearing a blue uniform, I am a nigger. That's but, what I am. But, but it's interesting that the lieutenant did not see you that way because of the uniform. 
Exactly. You just become, and he slipped, and later on he came and apologized to me. He said, you know, I was uptight, and, we, you know, you were embarrassing me because you weren't following orders. And, you know, and I followed every order they asked me to when I was there. If, it was, if we had to kill somebody, if we had to stage a murder, whatever we had to do, we had to clean up a murder, if we had to clean up a scene before internal affairs got there and move a body around and dress it up, I always did what I was asked. And... And then just because I flinched, because blatant racism was taking place, I was called into question. And then they wanted to test my loyalty. Once it happened, they want to test it. They brought a guy in who they beat up, and it was ice cold. It was like negative 20. I mean, one of the coldest nights as New York can get. And there was a puddle in the holding pen. And they brought the guy in, and they threw him face down in a puddle. And he, had, he was cuffed behind his back. And they opened the windows, and they let me see it. They stood there, and they kicked him in a puddle and spit on him and said, lay in that water, nigga. Lay down on the floor like the black dog you are. And he looked at me. And I walked into the – I left, and I went into the bathroom, and my eyes kind of watered up a little bit. And I came back, and I pulled him out of the puddle, and I sat him there, and I uncuffed him, and I bought him a cup of water. I looked out, and I looked at to the desk, and I looked at all the cops standing around. I knew from that point on I was no longer one of them. I had crossed the line. So I, I got to back you up. 50000 a day? Oh, yeah. Not not every day. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't clockwork. You know, it wasn't like clockwork. I was, you know, at one point I was bonded by the green. Sometimes it was a, a, a little more. Sometimes it was a lot less. We used to do what was called verticals. We would have a list of buildings that were doing high drug activity. One was one Hamilton Terrace. It's still there. They make about $3 million a day now. There's always 30 drug dealers outside. And I had to go in there during the day and do at least one vertical, up to the roof and down. Well, I would stand across on another roof and watch them sell drugs all day and watch where they store it, watch what apartments they went to. And I would load either round up rival drug dealers or I would or get some cops that were friends of mine and we would just walk up, kick in the door, and we would find maybe 300000 We would take maybe 50 for ourselves and say, that's the tax, unless you want to pay us on a weekly basis. And if, and, and if you want our protection, point out another building because we need to make arrests. What you so they'll say, you, sorry to interrupt, but what did you guys do with the money? What did, who did with the money? You. You. Oh, well, I lived, I, I, I had a very good time. I would go to the <laughs> View restaurant. I would. I, I dated some of the most beautiful creatures on earth. I mean, you named the most beautiful girl you could think of. We had a. We danced the night away. I had a fleet of cars, a couple of homes, everything I wanted. Uh, I, I would get. I would sometimes the, the, the sergeant would get mad at me and say, "Don't forget that you work for me," because because I was black, I was a go between a lot between the sergeants and the lieutenants in the street. You know, the money rolled uphill, the shit rolled downhill. Mm -hmm. And they needed me to smooth something up with drug dealers. I would go smooth it off. But when they wanted to look for me, when they had a problem, when someone wasn't paying, a store owner wasn't paying his tax, I would be getting my nails done or something like that. And they would come get me, or I'd be having my car detailed, or I'd be in a house of ill repute being serviced by working girls, and sometimes I'd be wearing a robe and have to put on my police uniform and come out and handle a drug beef between sergeants or white cops who was given a hard time by the local black drug dealers on the black side of Harlem. I worked on Sugar Hill. You have a Dominican side, you had a Puerto Rican corner, which was 141st, 
which um, Sugar Hill Tone I talked about. We framed him, and he just came home after 17 years. We had to frame him because there were, at that time, six different Dominican cartels. And they were getting rid of the Puerto Ricans, and I had to be part of the shutdown of the Puerto Ricans, which meant framing them with drugs. The Dominicans were, they were kind lords, and they paid very well. Did you know when you signed up that you were going bad, or did you go? Did, did something strike you on your way in and said, you know what, I'm going bad? No, when I first went to the police academy, the police academy kind of plays mind games. I came out, I started wearing my hair straight back. You know, you get on this real cop thing, a lot of brainwashing. When I came out, uh, the first thing I was assigned to was patrol. You know, and I went out and I caught, I saw a guy doing a drug deal. You know, right in my mind, one of my favorite movies was French Connection. I did a foot chase and ran this guy down and tried to do some cool Hollywood shaft shit. And I brought him down. And I broke my cherry. I was a rookie. I had like a solid day or two. I brought him in, and Sergeant Roundtree was a black man. I was shocked to see a black sergeant. So I stood tall and said, oh, yeah, all right, okay, a brother. He's going to see me, and I'm doing all doing my job, and I'm fighting evil, and things are going to change. You know, Michael Gordine is here. Drug dealing, gangs, that's over. I'm here. So I take out the three crack vials, and I put it on, on his desk. And he looks at me, wiping the coal out of his eye because he was sleeping. And he said, what the fuck is this? I said, sir, I, uh, I witnessed... The perpetrator in, in, a, in, a, in a criminal transaction, you know, I went into the whole dialogue, everything we were taught in the, pre, in the police academy, and there was a long pause, and then everybody busted out laughing. All the cops, the lieutenant, everyone was laughing hysterically. He said, you woke me up for this? He said, take the cuffs off that guy. He said, get out of here. He said, let him go. And um, the guy went down the walkway, and I, and I said, sure, what, I said, sir, what should I do with the crack? Sergeant Roundtree said, I don't give a shit if you smoke it, nigga. <laughs> get it off my desk and get out of here. <laughs> well, that's real life in the NYPD. We'll be right back with Michael Gordine. His brand new book is called Black Church. I want to talk about that when we come back after the 60-second break on True Crime Uncensored, unlovable outlaw radio. If you own a cell phone, and we know you do, or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer. You're now safe to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio, Demons of Decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll. I'm on Outlaw Radio, which is a big thrill not only for you, but also for me. Yeah, because we love Outlaw Radio. We love doing this show. We have great guests such as uh, Michael Gordine and many more. And um, when I'm not doing this, I sit home and stare at my computer screen and go, gosh, I have a book to write. <laughs> and so I sit and read someone else's and go, well, that was inspiring. Then I, you know, eat some ice cream. But sooner or later, I bang out a book and you go buy it. What you're invited to do right now, go to your favorite book. 
bookseller online or in person and just look for the name Burl Bearer, B-U-R-L-B-A-R-E-R, and maybe you'll pick up Body Count, True Story of the Spokane Serial Killer, or Headshot, Two and a Half Psychopaths, uh, let's see, oh, uh, Manley Williams, Deadly Sins, Murder on 9-11, 99 Days with Paul Abdul, 99 Days with Paul Abdul, no, no, that's Howard's unwritten masterpiece, but anyway, buy all my books, and while you're at it, buy Michael Gordine's new book, Black Church, Sex, Drugs, and the Holy Ghost, which we're going to talk about in just a minute on True Crime Uncensored. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, yes. I am a legendary Burl Bear. Howard Lapidus, manager of the star. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. And on the phone with us is Michael Gordine, my favorite corrupt cop, author of two really fascinating books. One's called Chili Pippin, Atlantic City. The other one, the brand new one, is called Black Church, Sex, Drugs, and the Holy Ghost. And uh, uh, if you were listening earlier, you heard me mention this guy has uh, an ear for dialogue and a mind for memorizing detail. Well, I'd like you to talk a little bit, uh, Michael, about the, the class or perceived class distinctions within the black community, within the black church. And uh, there's a great scene where these collide over some cocaine, but uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, in the black community, there's a fierce pecking order from top to bottom. In society, we have, in mainstream American society, we have, you know, the 1% upper class, upper middle class, middle class, lower middle class, working class, and poor. In the black community, there are about 20 levels of it. And there are things, there are rules, like in a game of backgammon, which can have you supersede someone who would normally be perceived as below you. There are things that can adjust the pecking order in a heartbeat. There are traits and attributes you can be born with that will move you up in the pecking order when you ordinarily shouldn't be. And when the crack epidemic came upon in the 1980s, it was a fantastic equalizer. Mm -hmm. What it did was it allowed the working poor, regardless of what they look like, whether they were light-skinned or dark-skinned, had curly hair, straight hair, or light or dark eyes, to supersede people who had an advantage. I mean, like, in the white world, in the black world, there are Paris Hilton's walking around only because her father's a police lieutenant. Even though he's a civil servant, and in your world, in the white world, that's shit. But in the black world, not only does he have economic power, he has political power. So what we did was people like relatives of mine and myself, especially a person who was small in stature. I'm only five foot eight. In the black world, that's technically a midget. I... um. I, I used it to, to gain power over people. I used it to gain influence over people. And not necessarily money sometimes wasn't even the aim. That's why I let Ronnie Cook use it. I tried to demonstrate that in that chapter, that she used it to get her son the boyfriend she wanted. She, uh, she went after someone who was the wife of a captain in corrections and who was what's known as a bourgeoisie snob. All black people hate those, especially the under-downtrodden and the underprivileged. That's why I had him meet the most—that was actually a real story. 
But I, I talked about that part in detail mainly because I enjoyed it. The way someone like you would enjoy listening or reading about a Nazi, like uh, <laughs> uh, like one of, I think his name was Himmler of the SS, how you would love to read about his downfall in every minute detail possible. So I really went in on that part, and I really went in on, for a while in the book, I lost focus on his wife's downward spiral into drugs because when you don't like a certain class of people in the black world when you feel like not only are you feeling the sting of the white man's whip but you're also feeling the bite of the white man's dog that's someone within your community doing the white man's job of putting his foot on your neck you enjoy their downfall and all drug dealers love selling to people i give them extra if somebody buys me an ounce i give them an ounce and a half if somebody buys me heroin, I make sure it's extra pure. I tell them to come back, see me. You have credit with me. So I want to watch you fall. I want to enjoy your downward spiral. I, I want you to get high in front of me. I want to see it. I want to watch you. I want to watch you die slowly. And I wanted to demonstrate that in the book. And, and, um, and I felt that part. I even got so lost in the character, people were shocked with what ultimately happened to Juanita. Mm -hmm. They didn't see that coming because I got so into her character because especially since when after I got fired from the police department, I found myself in a homeless shelter, as you know. I found myself homeless. I found myself, and after having the worst, there's only one thing worse than being poor, and that's being poor after having some money. Oh, yeah. And that's where I found myself. I, know, I, know. I, went, I went from the country club in Vegas to sleeping between two buildings on a piece of cardboard. Exactly. We're happy to hear that, bro. <laughs> yeah, you're happy to hear yeah, that. Yeah, I couldn't be happier. I mean, that was me <laughs> snuggling the other day. I, I love the bonfire of the vanity. <laughs> yeah. I love that. You know, it's uh, especially if, if it's an African-American and watch, uh, boy, am I politically correct. <laughs> if it's an African-American who had a lot of money and then they're down, boy, that's my favorite thing to see, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would have you enjoy to see me where I am now. That's what you'd really enjoy that one. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell. I am um, right now, you know. But in in the book, in 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 the book, the same way how you guys have country clubs, and you'll have servants, white and black. You never address them by their names. You address them as their role, their job, and you'll speak in front of them like, like you're a invisible. third. Like they're invisible. And in the book, I demonstrated how when after Rolani found the sweet tooth of Juanita, that she needed cocaine, yep. and Juanita used drugs in front of her, right, she called Rolani right. by her name. Yes. And that was, was a promotion. Yes. this is. I read this this out loud in the car yeah. to Mark today because I, this, I is the, that subtext. this is the chapter that blew me away. Because it is so dead enough, on. Because I have been there. Yes, you, know, you too are a Jewish black man. Yes, I too am a Jewish black man. Just ask the KKK. He's yeah. a Schwarz uh, <laughs> through and through. And I recognize these people. I recognize this scene, and I knew exactly what was going on. <laughs> and uh, uh, you said the, I'll quote from the book: "The fact that Juanita had called Walani by her name was a promotion itself. No longer was she the hood rat and project girl, but equal for starters." And uh, then she says, "There's plenty more where that came from, with an evil grin." And what she, she's, uh, you know, she's sassing her, and uh, that was so perfect. I mean, you cap. I mean, I got to compliment you. You captured this dynamic, which I have witnessed 
perfectly. <laughs> hey, hey, Michael, Michael, you know how to make money, right? I mean, yeah. you know how to make money. Yeah. And the bunch of us here are, you know, everybody's struggling. So I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, the book is going to be fine for you, but let's make some real money. We'll open up the West Coast division of your operation. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm afraid the West Coast division of that operation is spoken for. If I don't want to be found headless in Mexico. <laughs> that's, a great, that's, that's the title of your next book. I couldn't get head in Mexico. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That, that wing of the country, had that, a, flag, a flag is planted there. Yeah. See, in everything that we've done, though, we just do it a little better. <laughs> Well, it depends if you start first. Let me give you an example, all right? This is a, well, many years ago, there was a guy, I think his last name was Springer, no relation to, to Jerry. And the guy's original goal to make money was to be an anti-Semite and write anti-Jewish pamphlets and, you know, make money selling hate, you know, hate the Jews. He found out that the anti-Semite market was controlled by two families in New York. And he was the on Goldbergs the West Coast. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. So he looks at the West Coast and he goes, I can't really stir up a lot of Jew hate in here because uh, uh, they kind of uh, assimilated. Who can I sell hate uh, that's just different enough that you can spot them? I know, Catholics. It was a marketing decision. The guy made his entire living selling hate of Catholics with anti Catholic literature, etc. But it was purely a marketing decision. Personally, he didn't give a damn. But. He was just going to sell hate, and what was the market, and what was the product? It could have been Zoroastrians, it could have been Muslims, it could, it could have been American, and it didn't matter. He found the market, and he sold it. I'm putting this thing together in my head, though. I've had lunch with Suge Knight a couple times. Yeah. Wow. By the way, a trip and a half. <laughs> this guy starts ordering. It's, it's 3 in the afternoon, and he hasn't eaten yet. So he'll sit down, and he starts, and he starts with, uh, I'll have... Uh, Two eggs over easy, uh, bacon, uh, home fries, two cheeseburgers, uh, <laughs> chef salad chopped finely, um, a steak. <laughs> Kept going. Did he eat, eat everything? Yeah. Ate everything. And what, <laughs> what pissed me off is it was on my card. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and what am I going to say? Hey, Shug, slow it up. Excuse me, uh, Howard. Howard yeah. This is a ple- this is a guilty pleasure that I hope to have a happen again. Uh, what? What? Uh, sitting in and letting me pay for people eating? Yes. I'm happy to do that for you. The the, the Shug thing was really bizarre, and just to watch him, you know, put aside anything else you might know about the guy, it was all of a sudden the you know, and here comes the food, and it's not enough. And I'm a big guy. He's bigger than me, and I'm a big guy. And I can maybe make it through the the eggs and in, <laughs> and the salad. The salad. Well, the cheeseburgers came before the salad. Ah. Then the fries. Then the steak. Was, then was, the was dessert. This your, was this that? Was this at your uh, one of your favorite uh, regular? Home? No, it was at the um, uh, the hotel next to where CAA used to be. The uh, oh god. Uh, Starts with a P, help me out, the Peninsula. Peninsula. So yeah, you're talking hotel, you know, major five-star hotel prices. Mm. Yeah, you know, the egg part was $27. Well, he was, you know, I'm surprised he didn't put, the, put it in his pocket and take it home. I, I, he probably was doing that, you know. I, I don't know why we're talking about Suge Knight, but I, <laughs> I hadn't told that story in a long time. But it's uh, absolute truth, and, and then I w- had to do it again. Yeah. I, I had to. <laughs> 
uh, we, we had a situation with him. And he said thank you. Oh, no. Oh, no. 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 No, no. Not he, even a thank you? No, but, but wasn't not nice. Uh, it was actually you know, a collaborative, and he was fine. Until uh, he, one of the guys involved in this deal um, said something, and he said, I want all the stuff back. I want all the uh, video back. I want everything back. Guy spent about $800,000 shooting this stuff. I want everything back, and you can't have it again. And the guy said, well, no, I don't think I want to do that. And he says, think it again. And on think it again, he turned everything over to him, and that was the end of it. But that, it's a scary world that you lived in, Michael, and maybe you still do. You know, uh, just even to taste, uh, so to speak, that, that part of the world. Uh, and that kind of power, um, because he, you know, we're talking about Chuck Knight, comes with a variety of different kinds of power. Yeah. Uh, to ride into South Central with Suge Knight, which is uh, something I did, and deep, deep, deep into South Central. I mean, deep. Where I will be very soon. Good. So I'm down in. I'm, I'm as deep as you get, and, and and but I'm and I'm as white as the day is long. But I was okay because I was with him. Absolutely. But it was whoa. You know, you're getting the eyeball, and it's like, whoa. Well, a lot, a lot of guys don't go back down there. Freeway Ricky Ross and I were talking about this the other night. He said, where's Dr. Dre? He says, you don't see him in uh, South Central. He's in Woodland <laughs> Hill. <laughs> yeah. No, says, I no. happen to know says, that. Yeah, he says, no, you don't see him. He says, these guys be making a lot of money, he says, but they're not down here. No, no, not at all. It's uh, those guys... Suge had something, he, you know, he has an organization, you know, when, he, when you have, there's, just like in, in every aspect of the animal kingdom, whether it's Wall Street or whether it's Planet of the Apes, there's strength in numbers. And if you have a certain amount of people willing to follow your command, if you can lead them, if you can lead them to the promised land, which is dollar signs, they'll follow years. you. It takes 40 years, yeah. yeah. Uh, right, but they will follow you. You're right. They they will they'll follow. But but you've got to you do have to turn it green at some point because otherwise they take you you know it's, your, it, it's all BS and then you're finished. Oh, but the one thing you have to you have to also realize that no one is in more danger than him, Suge Knight himself. If he doesn't pay for those underlings children's private schools and their mortgages and their car payments, guess who you'll find. You know, along the highway in Los Angeles, you'll find him. Yep. He has to deliver. When you have that, when you have that kind of people, those kind of people in that world, those the, the people's loyalty is based on business, and you can never trust people whose loyalty is based on business because it can change like the weather. You have to deliver, and you have to deliver consistently. You know, or you'll find yourself, you know. Some people would consider what happened to me or where I am is worse than being killed itself. There are some people who would rather die. You see Frank Nitti in the Italian world? He'd rather die than be reduced to where I am now. To some people, this is worse than death. And during, the, during the stock market crash, it was raining stockbrokers in New York City. They couldn't imagine being reduced to where I am now. They couldn't fathom so, it. So you've got to be flexible. So how do you get out of this? How do we get out of what? How do you get out of where you are now? You know, tell me where. Oh. Tell me where oh. you are. Tell me where you are now. Define that for our audience. Where I am now is yeah. is is, uh, is public housing. What I, I have my children in private school. All of my money goes to that. I barely keep the lights on. I barely keep basic cable on. I barely keep my internet on. I barely keep my cars insured. Uh, just me and my wife have a, a ten-year-old cars, 
and I do it by consistently risking going to prison every day for peanuts. I mean, doing it's the it's the crime equivalent of collecting cans for the five cent exchange. Mm-hmm. That I'm a complete bottom feeder, living off of scraps of criminals. I might as well collect scrap metal and turn it in. Hey, my dad was a scrap metal dealer. We'll make you a deal. No, no, not 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 like a scrapper, like the ones with the little cards tied yeah, to the back yeah, of their yeah, bikes. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a, you know the guys who look like they haven't bathed in weeks. Yeah, I'm really at the of uh, the very bottom. Somebody who just swam across the Rio Grande selling T-shirts is higher on a totem pole than do, me. Do you have any dreams left? Oh, uh, my only the, dreams. No, I don't. It's um. It's uh, sometimes just to eat, I have to be reduced to complete depravity. And uh, to, to feed my children, sometimes I go way beyond. Sometimes I wonder if I made the right decision by saving that black guy that day in the cell. And I wonder where his life turned out because it surely destroyed mine. Well, it, on a superficial level, maybe yes. But I think if there's any reality to what anybody talks about from the pulpits of the black church, regardless of what's going on in the pews and in the bathrooms, uh, the reality is is your higher self showed itself, and that's a plus. Yeah, that's where I'm at with you, if you want to know the truth. I mean, you know, and what... It kind of. I didn't want to ask that question about your dreams, Michael, but I, I was. I think I had to, and and um, I was afraid of the answer, and and my my worst fears came true. But I, it 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 can't be. Look, you're writing books. You still well, you have to make a living. Well, well, writing writing books writing books is the same as playing the lottery. You know, you have to have some degree of hope. My favorite movie. Besides the one I put the clip on your site of Mr. Uh, Burl Barrier, his, his, uh, his acting debut, his Oscar-nominated <laughs> performance. But besides that, besides that movie, my favorite movie is is the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. It talks uh-huh. about hope in the prison chow hall. Hope is a good thing. Right, right, exactly. That my, me writing books. Me exactly. Me writing books is my way of. So not a lottery ticket. It's it's hope. And one thing I've gained out of it all is for years as a cop, I was such a yes man and a kiss ass. At this point, you know, I'm morally bankrupt, basically. So I have no reason to lie. There's nothing yeah, to gain. Got nothing to lose is very dangerous. So you're absolutely 100% qualified to be in show business. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. He is. If you absolutely. Guys, if, let me if ask you guys... If you guys offered me a job, I'd be on the plane to Walla Walla or Encino <laughs> Valley or wherever you are. If I could get a job anywhere, I would take one. No one's offered me any jobs. That's out. That's amazing I, because you could be a consultant on any number of, of films. If I could afford like to hire you, I would. <laughs> oh, thanks. That, 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 that feels good. Thank you. No, but that's true. I mean, look, look, you're, such, you're such a great, you're, you're a wonderful storyteller. I mean, a yeah. phenomenal storyteller. And I, I, I can't, I cannot find the difference between truth and, and some of the mythology. It's wonderful. And, uh, and the books, you know, they speak for themselves. So you've got that part. If you think that that's just a lottery ticket, I think you're wrong. I'll argue it because you can write. There are other people that, that, that do put out books that can't write their, their name. And it's, uh, you know, these stories that you tell are real. 
And and I, I want our audience to know that. What uh, I wanted to ask our two experts here, uh, I see a parallel to Joseph Wamba. Now, was it timing that made his material more accessible and made him made him wealthy, or is it the times now that there just isn't money? First in of all, you, you didn't see his bank account at the end, so I, you really can't you know judge a man based on what you think a man's bank account is. Okay, mm-hmm. that's so. Joseph Wamba had some great success. There's no question, and he did it by you know talking about and telling the stories that, that we know. Um, is there a correlation between Wamba and and Michael? Well, yes and no. I mean, Michael's world, if I may. I said parallel, not correlation. Oh yeah, okay, same. All right, let's. That's not arguing. I'm answering. I'm answering oh. parallel. Actually, I'm answering that really quickly, and Michael will will back me up. Is that the difference? He's talking about a completely different world. He's talking about a world. By the way, we, you, me, Burl, we don't know about this world. But the material. It, uh, oh, I'm saying I'm talking about the the marketability of Wombaugh's material. Well, Wombaugh's also was white. Uh, yeah, you have that. And but I mean, I mean, got a black guy here. I got no time you for. Go, you, you, you read this book. <laughs> yeah, really. You read this book. Kid, I'm kidding. You know, I'm kidding, right? Well, even though you're kidding, sometimes there's a lot of truth behind jokes. Yeah, the truth behind that joke is that there are people that think that way, unfortunately, and then that, that's the truth behind it. Look, what we saw Gary Oldman the other day uh, in Playboy, you know, start, uh, you know, uh, agreeing with uh, Mel uh, Gibson. Uh, you know, people are still out there in, in, in high places and in high profiles saying things that are just absolutely ridiculous. And yeah. and you as a as an African American black man Negro whatever you want to call yourself, uh, you have to wear it every day because it's the color of your skin. The Jews here, at least we get by because we're kind of almost sort of white. But you know, if if we if we had well, when push comes to shove, we're not. <laughs> no, no. A we're not, and B, uh, you know, anti-Semitism uh, is is something that we feel every single day. And the truth is, is the, the black man and the Jew should be together on this one and never apart because we suffer, you know, some of the same. In fact, I was on a plane with a uh, black fellow from the Department of Justice who had been sent out to Walla Walla, Washington, to talk to the judges who were giving bizarrely unfair sentences to Hispanics. As if a white guy was convicted, he'd get one year. If the Hispanic, he gets 20. Oh, that's the, good to hear, though. Yeah, and the Department of Justice came out. The guy told me, he says he did a meeting in Chicago where he got to get the, the the black community, the Jewish community, the, the Asians, and said, listen, if someone hates one of you, he hates all of you. Well, let it, me tell you, I can say right now that if it wasn't for the Hasidic community, the Voters' Right Act of 1964 wouldn't exist now. Even though blacks don't have the right to vote, we can vote under the Voters' Rights Act, which must be renewed every 25 years. If it wasn't for people like Rabbi Joshua, who walked arm in arm with Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. if it wasn't for the Hasidic community, blacks would still be in the back of the bus. It wasn't due to blacks. It was due to the correlation between blacks and the Hasidic community. We never covered as much ground as we did when we were supported by the Hasidic community, just like in, in every other aspect of divide and conquer. We've been on the ropes ever since that bond had been broken. Ever since there were people who went out west, who bought into the Zionist propaganda, 
who saw themselves as more of American than other ethnic groups, including the Hasidic community, has there been that divide, which led ultimately to the complete reversal of the civil rights movement. Black people on the whole are worse off than we were 100 years ago. Damn right. And you know what? Anti-Semitism is more prevalent today than it was 50 years ago. I don't know if it's more prevalent, bro. I think it, we, just, more we just hear about it more because the uh, social media brings it out. I don't think that it, uh, you know, I think it's been bad. Well, it's and been it, continue, bad. It, it continues to be just as bad. Okay. I'll tell you, all you got to do is go on Facebook or any of these places and look at the comments. The virulent uh, racism, virulent anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Muslim stuff is just, I mean, it's really sick. Well, the anti-Muslim stuff I'm with. But the, oh, come the, on. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Uh, we'll take the blacks. We'll take the we'll take the blacks and the Irish, but we don't want the Chinese. No, it's bad. So what what do you mean? Like the yeah. NBA draft? No, that was okay. that was Saddles and I blew them. Yeah, well, that was a, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Remember that? Because now here's a little saint fact for you. Leslie Charteris, author of the Saint, was half Chinese. Oh, yeah. And when he went to become an American citizen, they went, oh, we have the Chinese Exclusion Act. You can't be an American citizen if you have one drop of Chinese blood. It took an act of Congress for Leslie Charters to become an American citizen. I did not know that. Really? I didn't know that either. Yeah. Yeah, America's uh, famous for uh, having things like that. Sorry. <laughs> you don't know. No, you can't be an American citizen if you're Chinese. So I, I wanted to ask you um, why the church reference um, to your title of your book. Which is Black Church. Black Church. Well, Black Church, uh, it covers, see, in the the Hasidic faith, it's either uh, practicing Jews or non-practicing Jews. under, Under the umbrella of Christianity, in America... We have everything from AME, Zion, uh, uh, we have Episcopalian, we have Lutheran, which is the Salvation Army, we have Baptists, we have Southern Baptists, we have the Seventh-day Adventists, we have all different kinds of denominations of black Christianity. So I wanted to cover all of it, all of that crap on a whole, by just saying black church. When I say black church, or how we pronounce it, church, everybody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> all, all colored folk know what I'm talking about. Colored all, folk. All the colored folk. I'll tell, oh, I, I got to tell you, he said on Facebook one day, Michael uh, referred to uh, colored folks, etc., and NYPD, and some guy who didn't know that Michael was black just went off on him yeah. <laughs> for being a racist. <laughs> I have... Um, a sneaking suspicion or an educated guess as to who the Holy Ghost is. Excellent. Very perceptive. Oh, wow. That was great. I don't tell everybody that. Black church, sex, drugs, and the Holy Ghost. Oh, you know, only one other person mentioned that. Mentioned that in the book, there is a killer. There's someone doing the bidding of Lance Cook, Mm -hmm. who's an incarcerated kingpin. And the Holy Ghost is me. Very good. Excellent. (laughs) Michael, that that is why we are one of the top two true crime radio shows. (laughs) Yes. Very Sherlock Holmes-ish of you. Very good. I wanted to to get uh, get into the conversation about you being a pastor and... 
and all that, but we're running out of time. I mean, we'll have to get you back. Oh, you'll come back. Oh, yeah, he's great. He's coming back. I wish I could get your job, but I'm uh, overdrawn. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you something. We, you know, we're here to talk about your book and obviously promote your book, but the conversation was awe-inspiring. And, and uh, Michael, find your dreams, okay? You promise me. I will promise you that I will follow them. Now, I cannot promise you that our next conversation will not be from a prison telephone, but I can promise you that I will follow my dreams. Thank you. Well, I'll be in the hood uh, this week. My buddy uh, uh, Willie Fats Rockmore is in town uh, uh, down in the... uh uh, down in the heart of the city to go uh, about, uh, of course, you're not familiar with L.A., but uh, we have uh, that area south, what well, they used to call it South Central. And uh, we'll be down there this week. He's got his new rap stuff, and uh, we'll have a good time. And I'll be safe because I'm with him. Uh, <laughs> but, but, I will you know, listen. I will follow him. Don't wear that neon sign there, Burrow. Yeah. Okay. Michael, thanks a lot. We, we will have you Excellent. back. Thank you. Yeah, the new well. book is called Black Church, Sex, Drugs, and the Holy Ghost. You can get it uh, for your favorite bookseller online. Uh, download it, buy it, read it, believe it. Great guest, great book, great author. What a Thank wealth. you, Outlaw Radio. Keep smoking, drinking, and interrupting. Thank you very much. We love That's you, Michael. That's exactly what we're going to do. Matt Allen's coming up next. I got to say, Burrow. Yeah. What is next? Well, I believe next we have Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence, including but not limited to our Lapidus Mark C.G. Boyer, legendary Burl Bear, uh, and Mama Loves Me Like a Rock, (laughs) the Black Church, all sorts of cool people. Keep listening to Outlaw Radio, the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. The Baha'i Faith, good deeds, nice people. And a history of being persecuted, abused, and insulted, let's face it, not everybody appreciates the teachings of the Baha'i Faith. The Baha'i Faith encourages racial unity and interracial harmony, so racists don't like it. The Baha'i Faith upholds the equality of women, so sexists don't like it. The Baha'i Faith proclaims the harmony of science and religion, so the superstitious don't like it. And because the Baha'i Faith teaches that tolerance and love are the very foundations of a healthy community, Extremist fanatics don't like it. So, if you're a racist, sexist, superstitious fanatic, chances are you won't like the Baha'is at all. But if you have an open mind and a kind heart, hey, call us. You sound like a Baha'i already. For more information on the Baha'i faith, simply look in the phone book under Baha'i, B-A-H-A apostrophe I.
See the middle. 